0: okay to acknowledge that some people cannot and maybe should not return to the same sport that they struggled in
1: hello and welcome to life with ed the podcast i'm julia worth your host a registered dietitian here in new haven connecticut happy march everyone um I'm recording this a little bit early because this weekend, this past weekend, when you're listening to this, I was at a wedding in Florida, and I, right now, I'm hoping it will be a wonderful time, Um, and tomorrow is my birthday, so um, this is the last episode where I am 24. Tomorrow, I will be 25, and I'm really excited for um, this new start. (laughs) I don't know. I'm all about like new beginnings, setting goals and and excitement. And I love that my birthday is in March because March is always sort of a month where people lose hope and concentration and focus and have a lot of problems because there's nothing really great going on. It's it's like normally gross weather and, um, you know, there's no vacations, no holidays. So yeah, so enjoy March. You know, my birthday is tomorrow, so celebrate for me. Um, But it's also Lent. So Lent, for those of you who do celebrate um, and are Christian or Catholic, um, Lent began last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Um, I guess that was two Wednesdays ago, if you're listening now. Um, So I wanted to share an article as our article of the week that is about Lent and eating disorders, because Lent is often a time where people begin... Restricting and you know fasting is the theme of Lent. So the idea is that you're supposed to fast or give up something or take on a new challenge um, to make yourself, you know, prepare yourself for the Lord's coming um, on on Easter. So I was sent this article by a fellow listener, and I think it's really important. So here we go. I'm gonna read you the beginning. The article is called, Why Lent Can Be a Dangerous Time When You're Recovering from an Eating Disorder. It took me a long time to believe that God was not disappointed with my body. It took me even longer to learn that Ash Wednesday was not my yearly diet launch date, that Lent was not a time for me to give all my food-related desires to God and come out the other end a better person, slimmer and with more self-discipline. Unfortunately, Lent is the time of year where my Catholic faith threatens to derail my hard-fought healing, a years-long process of learning to accept my large body and to realign, realign my relationship with food amid an eating disorder diagnosis. The whole give up sugar and lose weight during Lent impulse, that is the impulse of diet culture, and it is a problem when it surreptitiously slides into our churches unchecked. Diet culture is the miasma of social expectations that to be considered good, a body must be trim and healthy. It is a message that saturates the cultural fabric, and no matter where I go, I witness its demands. In commercials, in online interactions, in the harsh whisper of my inner critic that my very large body is a disappointment to God and that I need to change it. I am not even safe in church." So, the author goes on to talk about how she came to the Catholic faith and her journey in realizing that, you know, God loves all bodies and everybody, and He made everybody. So, He does not want you to harm it or change it. And um, she really had some good insight into really what Lent is about. She said, God made our bodies for relationship, not thinness or ability. The cultural demand for us to be smaller steals our joy and our capacity to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. She really, I think, has a great message for Catholics and Christians out there, people who take Lent as an excuse to go on another diet and better themselves. Lent is not about bettering yourself. And, you know, a diet is not really bettering yourself, but that if you are taking Lent as an excuse or a reason to diet, to make yourself better, that is not the point. It is about making you know room for God and really connecting with God. So um, I would give this article a read if you're someone who celebrates Lent. I think it was really great. I want to thank my listener and friends who sent this in. So um, yeah, check that out. I think it's awesome. This week, we are starting a four-week series that is all about sports. So over the next four weeks, we are going to hear from dietitians. We're going to hear from dancers. We're going to hear from, you know, people who work in the realm of sports and movement every single day. And I think this will be a great opportunity to really dissect how our philosophy around food can impact athletes in their day-to-day and how people with eating disorders can return to sport. That's something I get a lot of questions about. And for some people, it can be one of the greatest challenges of their recovery is how, or figuring out how to exercise again without re-triggering their eating disorder. So today I am so excited to welcome Paula Quatrimoni. She's a professor at Boston University. Um, She also works for Walden Behavioral Care. She is such a phenomenal resource and voice in this community, and I honestly, hands down, I always say this a lot, but this was my favorite episode to record ever. I learned so, so much from talking to Paula, and I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, here we go. Hi, this is Paula. Hi, Paula. This is Julia.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good, thank you.
1: Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to start with, uh, you know, a little explanation of what you do and who you are. So my listeners um, know.
0: Okay, sure. So I am, my primary job is at Boston University. I am on the faculty in nutrition. Mm -hmm. I'm an associate professor here at the university. And I'm a department chair of the health sciences department, but my consulting work is at Walden Behavioral Care, and I'm a senior consultant to the nutrition department. And so in that role, I support um, all of the registered dietitians and the lead dietitians in the different levels of care, Um, and I do a lot of uh, sort of continuing education and professional development with them. Mm, Okay. And I helped to create the Walden Goals program, which is the eating disorder treatment program that we've designed specifically to treat athletes with eating disorders.
1: Right. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that uh, later in the show. Um, Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what it is that makes athletes so vulnerable towards eating disorders.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, athletes are susceptible to all of the things that those of us in the general population are too. I mean, mm-hmm. for eating disorders, there is a genetic predisposition, right? And mm-hmm. then there are a lot of... Um, sort of psychosocial things that put anybody at risk, somebody who has anxiety or somebody who has depression or some um, like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder behaviors, th- those tend to coexist with risk for eating disorders. So you can imagine in an athlete mm-hmm. that all of that can be very heightened, right? Because there's a lot of pressure to perform. And so the anxiety around performance or, you know, was, was this race good enough? Was my time fast enough? If an athlete gets an injury. They can become depressed. Somebody has taken their spot on the team. They may never prove to their coach that they deserve that spot back. And so those anxiety, depression, OCD behaviors can become heightened in an athlete. But then there's all these other factors that we've come to know through research that um, are things that are unique to the sport environment that put an athlete at risk. Uh, Some of it has to do with you know, what it takes to be a committed athlete and especially someone who is at an elite level or, say, a Mm -hmm. high school athlete who's trying to earn a scholarship to college, right, Um, all of those things and, like, some of the interpersonal qualities that make somebody a really elite athlete can also unfortunately lead them down a path to an eating disorder. So some of the things like the level of discipline and commitment and I can drive through my pain and I can set a goal and achieve that goal at whatever cost, right? Like the Mm -hmm. win at all cost mentality. Some of that, especially if things are not going so well in sport if somebody is not living up to their expectations or they're not getting the praise and feedback they want from their coach or they're being outshined by a teammate or they're not getting those recruits from college like it can drive an athlete to want to control more and more about their life circumstance to try to earn all of those accolades. And so those things that make an athlete very coachable, you know, yeah, and, and <laughs> the good the as well. also yeah. unfortunately are some of the eating disorder characters, It's including like the perfectionism, right? right. I need oh, to yeah. be perfect in my sport, perfect in my technique, which sometimes gets translated to perfect in my body, right. perfect in my uniform, how I look in my uniform, perfect in my eating and my discipline. And so a lot of those things, um, you know, just become very misplaced and misdirected towards both nutrition and, you know, diet and restrictive eating, but also sometimes towards overtraining and, you know, compulsive exercise and overtraining, no, you know, not taking a rest day off, not resting and healing your body. And then those are the things that really start to lead down a path of a disorder which can be double-sided both on the feeding side, but also on the over-exercising and over-training side.
1: Right. And is um, there a particular eating disorder that you see most often in athletes? Or do you see so of really a variety? So that's really interesting
0: because, so again, like it's hard because a lot of the prevalence data is not very accurate because right. athletes tend to under-report their symptoms and athletes tend not to get into treatment mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. And so, You know, the data that we have that survey, you know, what are the rates and who's most affected, Mm -hmm. they're widely variable, they're widely ranging. And so depending on the population that's been studied, um, for example, the victory program at McCallum um, published a paper and in their athlete subsample, the most common diagnostic category, I believe was more in the anorexia range. Right. Whereas what we published from Walden, our most common diagnostic category was the um, other specific feeding uh, and eating disorder. So like the offset or it used mm-hmm. to be called the eating disorder, not otherwise specified. So a little bit Not that it's subclinical because it is a clinical diagnosis, but not necessarily reaching the top threshold in terms of frequency and severity. But I think some of the difference there was the level of care. Our athlete program at Walden is in the intensive outpatient, so it's a lower level of care, whereas Victories is at a higher level, inpatient and residential. Right, that makes total sense. Or residential and partial hospital. So, you know, so it's what we see at Walden presenting to Walden are largely these you know, very serious disordered eating and kind of the subclinical eating disorders. And I think, you know, we're getting them into treatment now because we have an athlete-specific program. But these are the kids who fly under the radar screen and have been struggling for years. And Mm. nobody's recognized it. Nobody's picked up on it. They're not even sure that what they have is a disorder. They certainly don't perceive themselves as sick or at risk. But they're just really struggling and really worn down. And in some cases, their body bodies are starting to break down and with repeated injuries and they finally will come into treatment because now we have this athlete program. And so, you know, I believe in what I've seen, you know, in clinical practice at the university level is that so much of, there's just so much disorder at the subclinical realm, which is telling me that we need more services and we need to be intervening a lot sooner than later. And it
1: almost feels, and I, I've had, athletes on my show who've had eating disorders and um I am an athlete who had an eating disorder and I just think so much is sort of normalized in the sports Mm -hmm. as well and seen as like oh that's it's normal if you get you know a couple stress fractures and it's normal if you're (laughs) like um you know not eating as much or losing weight or something like that right
0: and that gets back to some of the environmental factors like right. you know what is role modeled by your peers and what is the culture on your team that's oftentimes set by the coach like mm-hmm. is is body shaming language allowed and made fun of you know yeah. is it yeah. is it condoned is it tolerated are the you know, assistant coaches participating in it. Like, you know, the the tone and the culture and the the language that's used in, in allowed and what's it like, what's the, the environment at a team meal and when you're on the road and like, mm. you know, what's the language that's used, what's acceptable, what's role modeled. And so that is one of the things too, I think that puts athletes at risk is sort of what I call the contagious nature. Yeah. Because yeah. the behaviors can spread like wildfire because if, it, if it's known that the coach's expectation is everybody could stand to lose, you know, 10 pounds or so, then you've got this chronic dieting, you know, or again, if there's a culture that everybody should be on a keto diet or right. everybody should be low carb, yeah. like that gets perpetuated throughout a team yeah. and, you know, it can go to extremes because, you know, that's not necessarily the right advice for anybody and it's certainly not the rice advice for everybody right
1: definitely so um are there any sports that you see this most commonly in um where that culture sort of does enter the sport and you see more eating disorders
0: yeah i mean again i think the literature is a little bit Skewed. Back and forth yeah. on this. Some literature says, you know, oh there are these lean sports and the endurance sports yeah. and the aesthetic sports, right? Like gymnastics, figure skating, the ones where you get judged on right. how you like, look how what do you, you look? do, you sport, like like <laughs> yeah. diving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there are uh, there are so many um, cases that occur in the non-traditional sports or like the ball sports. I mean, we've had several female hockey players come into our program at yeah. Walden. We yeah. have, I've worked with soccer, lacrosse, crew. You know, crew is a weight-based sport like wrestling oh, is, right? So yeah. there are weigh-ins associated. So any yeah. of those sports tend to be very vulnerable, but... I mean, my take on it is that no sport is immune because it comes back oftentimes to the sport pressures and the role modeling. But also, like, what is marketed to athletes? Like, what's on social media, right? And what is your body supposed to look like? So even if it's not, like, a restrictive eating disorder like that leads to anorexia, but some of the muscle dysmorphia Mm, eating disorders where guys think they have to bulk up, bulk up, and have the 12-pack abs, right? Like, those are just as dangerous in terms of you know, over-reliance on supplements and using things that have banned substances in them that yeah. are going to get you into trouble and overdoing your protein, but, you know, maybe intermittent fasting or keto diet restrictions. And it's like all of that falls into this disordered eating, potential right. eating disorder range. And so, yeah. you know, I, that's one of the, the nice things, I think, that the REDS model has done for us, the relative energy deficiency in sport, right. is it says, you know, it's not just about a clinical eating disorder because you can be in a disordered range and have low energy availability and it can come from both sides of the equation, both overtraining and or the Mm underfueling. And like, wow, this is not just a female's issue, but it it affects male athletes and it affects athletes in all different kinds of sports and it has serious physiologic and, you know, mental health consequences. And so that paradigm has really allowed us to open up the conversation and and say you know what this is not just about the distance runners yeah. this is much more far-reaching yeah for sure
1: i so i used to and i still do to some extent work at schools and present to their sports teams and i went last year to one school and it's a college and i was think i was with the football or the baseball team and like every single person was taking a supplement of some kind, you know, mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. just sort of talking with them like, why? Like, what's the reasoning behind that? And you're totally right. It is, you know, a disordered behavior sort of in itself where they're like, well, I just need to get big for this. Yeah. And it's
0: marketed to them. That oh, this is yeah. what you need to do to achieve this outcome. And, you know, that's what's There's just such low education about Mm -hmm. the dangers of that. There's such low availability and access to nutrition professionals to teach people how to really feed themselves and to meet the demands for their sport. Mm -hmm. And there's such low awareness among coaches as well in terms of, you know, I mean, I've heard coaches say, oh, well, I coach men. I don't have to worry about you know, eating disorders, or yeah. I coach X, Y, and Z sport that doesn't exist here, and it's like, yeah, absolutely, it does exist, and yeah, definitely, <laughs> you're pretending if you think it doesn't. Um, so how so can there's parents? A ton of education yeah. that needs to be done. Yeah,
1: how can parents and coaches, like the ones you're talking about, recognize if a player or someone on their team has an eating disorder?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, you have to be open to considering the possibility that it could exist right, right? Yeah. on your team you or in your child. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is you have to be open to it and you have to be an astute observer mm-hmm. and you have to be a really good listener. Oh, you yeah. know, how does that athlete talk about their body? How does that athlete talk about food? If you listen to the words people use, it's really powerful and it can give you some very early clues because the bottom line is, is you don't want to wait until somebody is like disappearing before your eyes. Yeah. right. Either <laughs> they are wasting away and getting emaciated because they've lost so much weight that it's so noticeable or they're disappearing because they're socially isolating. Mm-hmm. They're hiding in their room. They won't go out to team dinners. They won't go out with their friends. They can't be around food and they can't be social. Like those behavioral changes are really compelling. And we need to be looking for that, but we if can't you, wait yeah. till it gets to that point because by then the person's really kind of in trouble. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we can't wait till girls stop having their periods, but at the same time, we can't ignore when they don't have their periods, either if it's markedly delayed yeah. or they've stopped having it. Like those are very downstream. When somebody's on the third stress fracture, that's <laughs> not when the red flag should be raised. I mean, there's a lot of precursors that might have been missed along the way. So what are some um, of
1: those precursors? Because I think people know, you know, about well, some people know about the last period of the stress fracture. But um, yeah, what could you notice maybe before that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly changes in um, a person's eating behavior. So if mm-hmm. it's a parent and you're noticing that your child is, like, not eating breakfast in the morning or they're mm-hmm. saying, you know, you know, I don't want lunch or I want to pack my own lunch and they're packing very light food or, again, it's hard to see if they're eating in that cafeteria with their friends at school or if they're sitting, you know, and throwing their food in the trash. So, yeah. you know, yeah. what's happening at the family dinner table, if there is such thing as family dinner these days. Um, And so, you know, if but if your child is saying, all of a sudden, I want to be vegetarian, I want to be vegan, like, have a conversation, like, what is motivating that? Mm. Um, Because oftentimes, those types of behavioral changes are an attempt to control a food environment, you know, for the sense of trying to be healthier or trying to be more committed as an athlete, but if you're not informed about what it means to go vegetarian and how you're going to meet your nutritional needs as an athlete on a vegetarian eating plan, yeah. you can really go down the wrong path. And oh, so yeah. as a parent if my child were to say that to me, I would have a conversation and the next thing I would do is say let's find a dietitian to have a consultation with and figure out is this the right thing for you and if you're going to do your sport and you want to be vegetarian, how are you what does that look like and how do you go about meeting your needs? You know what I mean? It doesn't do you need salad and pasta. Like oh yeah. How are you gonna get your protein needs <laughs> and calcium and vitamin D. I know. So Yeah. You know, I, so I think being on the lookout for dramatic diet changes, whether mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a lot of self monitoring, I think we have to be really careful with these things that monitor all of our mileage and our steps oh, and man, our eating steps. behaviors like yeah. over over attention and obsessive behavior in those areas. Um, I think you know again, somebody who's really all of a sudden starting to cut out certain food groups or refusing to eat foods that have always been a favorite or you know a family, whether it's a celebration food or even a staple, like somebody who says okay i'm I'm not eating meat or I'm not doing dairy like trying to understand what is motivating that right um. But I do think the behaviors about like, you know, sort of the the fat talk and the body shaming stuff, mm-hmm. when somebody is chronically dissatisfied with how they look and their appearance and making comments or, um, you know, those those kinds of phrases can be really telling. And, like indicative, you know, yeah. if, if we listen to how our kids are talking or if we're listening to how teammates are talking to each other in the locker room or, you know, it, it's really important to, you know to notice that and to sort of intervene when you hear that happening because those are some of the things that become contagious. It sets the tone for other athletes who maybe were never affected but now all of a sudden they're like, oh, my God, she just called this one fat. Like, what must she think about me, right? Right, yeah. Um, Because it just sets, you know, it feeds on other people's insecurities. And, of course, social media doesn't help us with that at all. But, you know, if you see your athlete, you know, I mean, it's like who are they following on social media? Like, there are lots of great collegiate sports dietitians out there putting out great sports nutrition information like let's help our coaches and our athletes follow them instead Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. you know maybe some of the other celebrity stuff or stuff that is very you know misguided and misinformed
1: so what could Um, a coach do to make like the team atmosphere more preventative towards eating disorders yeah
0: Again, I think coaches can do a lot, first of all, by getting some education for themselves. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's not mandated and it's not no, easily yeah. identified and accessible. So they need to seek it out and they need to demand that their professional coaching conferences start to invite people to talk about these topics. So they need to get some education themselves or, you know, pick up a copy of Nancy Clark's Sports Nutrition Guidebook or, you know, there's there's a great new book by um, Rebecca McConville about, you know, preventing relative energy deficiency in sport. It's not a very thick book. That's a great read for a coach to start to understand some of this. So I think first and foremost, education. Mm-hmm. Um, but the they're, they're coaches are role models, right? And so they need to you know, walk the talk and they need to be educating and talking with their athletes about the importance of proper nutrition and having snacks for those long bus rides and, you know, talking, you know, you know, in terms of, you know, if they are going to give them nutrition advice, make sure that it's coming from an accurate place that, like I said, they could be following some of these collegiate dietitians on social media, they could be giving advice from Nancy Clark's Sports Nutrition Guidebook, like very basic, but reinforcing, you know, proper feeding of yourself rather than making sure that they're not giving diet advice. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. you know, avoiding weight conversations and avoiding weigh-ins. It's not really you know, something that coaches should be doing. I know it's a part of weight-based sports, but again, is it the coach who's doing it or is it an athletic trainer or a strength coach? Like who's the appropriate person to, you know, to really kind of separate out the weight from the coaching stuff around the skills and the techniques of the sport, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can't conflate the two. We know that performance is not driven just by weight, um but we know that some sports like you have to be at a certain weight to compete at a certain class so obviously those are kind of unique circumstances but in the big scope anything that a coach can do to keep the focus on the sport and the performance and the training required to do the sport and not making it about weight obviously that's a much safer realm to stay in and i think a lot of coaches you know can can make that mistake easily um in terms of pinpointing weight or trying to have a weight conversation with an athlete and rarely does that ever go well. Right. Um, And so, you know, but I think, you know, having a zero tolerance culture for body shaming or negativity around, you know, judging people's food choices or, um, you know, again, I think, I think just role modeling the positive, um, but certainly when you do see the negative energy, I do think you have to call it out and say, you know, that's not who we are as a team and we don't condone that kind of, you know, ridiculing of one another. Or right. I mean, it's, I, I see these things. Sometimes I see it, you know, at collegiate, like, you know, the, the, a team is getting on a van to drive to an off-site you know, track or, or golf something. course yeah. or whatever. And it's, you know, the jokes, you know, this is the, the joke, fatty's in the back.
1: Right. I'm like, excuse oh, yeah. me? Yeah. Like,
0: that's not funny. <laughs> that yeah. is, well, you got to call that out and say, that is not acceptable. We're not having any of that here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's just such a tendency in our society to like poke fun and make it make a joke of things, but that's frankly bullying. And I think we need to call it out when we see it.
1: Right. Definitely. You know? And so I, I know we've talked a lot about, like, noticing when an athlete does have an eating disorder and getting them to help. But how do you get an athlete, like, who has gone through recovery, like, back into a sport? I think I hear from people all the time, like, I don't know how to rejoin without getting those behaviors back or yeah, falling into that trap. that's
0: a really good question. And I think it's really important. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that some people cannot and maybe should not return to Right the same sport that they struggled in Mm -hmm. and sometimes people return to sport but they find a different sport or a different way to really, you know, connect and engage with their body, whether that's through, like, yoga or other types of exercise. But, I mean, I've seen, I I can think of a a book that I read by a competitive figure skater where her eating disorder was really, really bad and fueled by the figure skating industry where she was told to lose weight and, you know, the concept of the judges and the costumes and all that. And after she recovered from her eating disorder, she became um, a rower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, wow. not on a lightweight rowing team on a rowing team where she had to be strong and powerful yeah. and then after that she became a cyclist mm-hmm. and so you know her love and passion to sport was still there but she just could not return to competitive figure skating because that was too painful in a difficult environment for her to be in um, I've seen you know other athletes who can return to their exact sport and go on to become all Americans. Wow. And so it's definitely possible, but it's also one of the things that an athlete has to work through in therapy because it can be a loss if you determine that returning to your sport is not the right thing for you. So it's, it's highly individualized. It's right. not a decision that should be made without a treatment team. And, you know, we do have guidelines for when an athlete can return to training and when they can return more to competitive sport, right? Because you don't just jump right back into it. And Mm -hmm. you certainly can't rush that process because if you do, you're just going to have, R- major risk for relapse. Yep. And yeah. So <laughs> I see that it, all the it time needs to be, yeah, it needs to be heavily supervised and, you know, returning even to training before someone can return to competition requires, you know, that there's treatment compliance. And so depending on the person's diagnosis, that might include weight restoration to, you know, a certain level If you know, if someone had been anorexic and was really like way low on their, on their weight, you would mm-hmm. have to be weight restored um and but other you know that's why especially in collegiate programs we tend to use like a therapeutic contract that specifies like you know that the athlete will continue to be working with the members of the multidisciplinary team at a certain level of frequency and until certain parameters are met they're not going to be allowed to return and if they want to return they need to remain treatment compliant and so and Mm -hmm. that has to be evaluated you know frequently and ongoing because of course the circumstances can change and it may no longer become safe to keep training and so you know the concept of being medically stable and you know obviously not having an active stress fracture but you know the weight restoration and the, the behavioral adherence to treatment and you know the behavioral um I don't want to say extinguishing, but I guess lessening of the symptoms, you know yeah the, use of yeah, the eating disorder behaviors, and so that all has to be monitored um by the different members of the team and and the reds um the clinical assessment tool does give us a paradigm for determining, based on a lot of different parameters, if a person is in the green light category and can be cleared for full participation, or if they're in the yellow light category where, you know, they can do supervised um, uh, participation with definite parameters around dose intensity and frequency, uh, or if they're in the red category where, no, they, you know, really should not be training and... um, you know, maybe doing some low-level movement like yoga, again, supervised, but um, but it could even be a complete exercise restriction. It really depends on the severity of the symptoms and what's going on.
1: Right. So I was hoping you mentioned at the beginning, there's a little, but hoping you could talk about the goals program at Walden and what it offers, because I think that's pretty unique. Um, there aren't a lot of sports-focused uh, eating disorder recovery programs.
0: Right. I think there are only three in the country, and I got really inspired when I was at the Eating Disorders and Sport Conference, the very first one that McCallum Place held, I think it was back in like 2016, um, and uh, I came away from that conference hearing about the Victory Program and what they were doing there, and I just said, wow, we need this in Boston. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I had been working on a collegiate campus for, you know, almost a Probably a decade at that point, or more than a decade, and you know, there's just like you say, there was not, there's nothing like that in the Northeast. And so, when I partnered with Walden, and, and I told them that I had this vision of creating this, and, and they shared that vision and said, "Let's do it." So, we built it slightly differently from what Victory has, and that Walden really wanted to put the program on at the IOP level of care, which is the intensive outpatient
1: right. program.
0: So, the way Goals runs is it's three nights a week. For, I think, like a three and a half hour program, and it's all athlete specific. So it's for adult athletes um, 18 or above, so collegiate. And adult, Um, you know, we have several athletes who are, have been, um, you know, like triathletes or marathon runners who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s, you know, living professional lives as adults, but still training and competing and unfortunately still struggling with eating disorders. Um, And so... um, Competitive athlete, again, whether it's, you know, as an individual or part of, say, like a collegiate team. So we've had a whole gamut. And so the program, we have a multidisciplinary team. So we have the program director is an eating disorder specialist who um, she herself is a marathon runner. And so she intimately knows sport. But then we also have a sports psychologist, so a master's trained sports psychologist who is a therapist in the program. And then we have um, the registered dietitian in the program who not only – well, he's a male, which is kind of unique in our field. Uh, Yeah, yeah. um, But he also is a certified strength and conditioning coach, and he has a degree in exercise science in addition to nutrition. So he's really valuable in the sense that he can do the nutrition services piece, but he can also do the exercise prescriptions and the decisions about return to sport. Um, and so, and then we have program advisors. So I'm on the curriculum side for the development of the nutrition curriculum. We have a PhD level sports psychologist who collaborated with us on building the curriculum for the therapy groups. Um, and what we, we built it as a research program. So we've been collecting data since mm-hmm. we opened the program. And so the participants come in, um, and they have, each night of program, they have two groups and then we have a shared dinner meal. So they get that kind of therapeutic meal experience with the meal coaching around whether it's challenge foods or, again, proper portioning and plating to meet their nutritional needs. And And so they get once a week, they have a one-on-one session with the, the sports psychologist. And once a week, they have a one-on-one session with the dietician. Um, once a week, they have a yoga group class and then the then the other group instructional that happen each night of the program is a 1 hour nutrition group and then a 1 hour Therapy group. And so, in the group work is where we've got our curriculum in place. And so, all of the topics of the groups, of course, are athlete driven. And so, it's about, you know, building an athlete to stand the test of time and helping them understand their nutritional needs and helping them understand how vulnerable they are when they get injured and, you know, how they, you know, will need to adjust their food intake on hard training days versus lighter days or if they're injured or if they're restricted from participation and so helping them navigate all of those nutritional decisions but and then on the therapy side they're really building this the coping skills right so they're doing the CBT and the DBT and mm-hmm. all of those therapeutic interventions around body image and sort of my like athlete identity and you know how do I communicate with my teammates and my coaches or my parents so, you know especially for some of the The 18, 19 know, those emerging young adults who still have parent influences or maybe live at home when they're not in college. And, you know, how do you deal with the dynamic in your family household if there's a lot of pressure on you to look a certain way or perform as an athlete? And so that's what's happening on the therapy side. So everything is really with an eye towards that. Unique circumstance of an athlete and the people that you're accountable to, whether it's coaches or strength coaches or the weigh-ins or the things that are really causing you distress. And so it's about building the coping mechanisms on one side of the program, and then on the nutrition side, the one of the real cornerstones of the program that I've insisted on, you know, really building the program around is eating competence. Right. You know, yeah. how do these athletes really learn how to feed themselves and feed themselves reliably and to use use, you know, some of the intuitive eating skills, but the the information, we call it informed intuitive eating, Mm -hmm. like the information that is needed to say, these are my escalated needs as an athlete, but these are the pressures I'm up against. And these are my fears about my body or weight gain. Well, how do I you know put that all together and say but this is the nutrition my body needs to excel at my sport and to keep doing the sport for the next 4 years of college for example um and so we've really worked hard in all of our our group education, but also reinforcing those in the one-on-one sessions and in the, the goal setting that the athletes do around how do we build eating competence. And those are some of the things we've been able to show in our outcome measures that this program actually is extinguishing The eating disorder symptoms and increasing the eating competence that's awesome Um, and, and the shift in mindset that's occurring like some of the you know we we ask the participants at the beginning when they come into program like what is it that you hope to achieve and then you know we ask them when they finish the program what do you think your biggest accomplishments were and it's just really remarkable um the transformation that happens in this you know six to eight week outpatient program, when athletes are willing to put the work in, they can really move towards recovery and they can gain the life skills that are going to help them go back to sport and manage what they need to, um, you know, how how they need to take it's the self care, right? How they Mm -hmm. need to take care of themselves and participate in their sport.
1: Well, that's so cool. That's awesome. We don't have anything like that in Connecticut, for sure. I know. Well, we're really
0: proud of it, and so we want to see it grow. And so yeah, we, what yeah. we've been doing at Walden is is, is now expanding the dietitian. His, his name is Matt Strandberg. He was the first author on that paper, but expanding his role throughout the organization because, of course, athletes don't only come into the IOP level of care. Right. We have them at all the other levels. And we also have people who are not necessarily – Athletes, but they have compulsive exercise
1: yeah, disorder yeah. as
0: part of their eating disorder. And so Matt is now able to consult on all of those cases across the organization at the higher levels of care. And then when those clients improve and get healthy enough then they can come into goals in the iop level Or again he can just continue to do the goals like work by bringing the curriculum components and bringing the mindset and all that we've developed in goals now into the higher levels of care um and so that's something that we really hope to expand because walden is opening a new facility this spring in Dedham, that's going to be something oh, wow. like 80, okay. 80 beds of between inpatient and residential. Is that bigger um, than
1: the one in Waltham?
0: Much big? bigger. Yeah, I think it's okay. like basically doubling the square okay. footage. Wow! So it's a brand new state-of-the-art facility and we are really upping our game in all aspects of treatment on the nutrition side, on the therapy side, on the meal coaching side and with regards to, you know, the incorporation of exercise and eating disorder treatment because this is this is also relatively new. I mean, for a long time, it's been, you know, when you're in treatment, you're not supposed to be exercising, right? That's the first thing that's banned, but, you know, with, with better recognition that, you know what, the exercise is a coping mechanism and if harnessed properly, it can be a positive coping mechanism. And if it's supervised and monitored and, you know, prescribed appropriately, and if the clients can be you know, compliant with what's been prescribed, it can actually be a very successful therapeutic tool. You led me right into my
1: next question. (laughs) Yeah, there's
0: new literature that's just come out about this in the last couple of years. And um, that's something that Walden is trying to be, you know, among the leaders. I mean, there are other programs that are leading it, Alsana and the Victory Program, and Walden wants to be right up there. Um, doing the same. And, and it's so interesting, because just yesterday, I was asked to be on the steering committee for the development of, like, safe exercise guidelines and eating disorder treatment specifically for athletes. Like, this doesn't exist. This is brand no, new. I know. Wow. You know, there's a group that wants to look at this and try to look at the literature and set out some best practices. And I was, like, so flattered that they asked me to join the steering committee and, you know, the the time is right to to start to really pay attention because there's so many people in this category that need this help and this guidance and we need to make it more available and we need to make sure that it's informed by research.
1: Yeah, that's amazing because I, I just struggle so much with the idea that you're supposed to tell someone like don't exercise at all if it is something yeah. that is like bringing joy to their life and some connectedness to other people and and something like that um, right yeah it's hard to see and a the patient, joy piece. yeah, be told, yeah was
0: just no. say, the joy piece brings us back to like how does an athlete you know re, re-enter their sport because if there are ways and I think especially for high school athletes but also for collegiate athletes like when you are in treatment like you need to maintain your connections to your teammates they're your friends right you yeah. live with them you travel yeah. with them you eat with them so we can't let treatment be so isolating mm. um, you yeah. know again it's somewhat individual in terms of like can the person handle being around their team and their teammates like is it good and supportive for them or does it just make them feel more depressed right so we right. obviously need to monitor that Assess but them. you know yeah. is there another role that the athlete could play on the team even though they're not able to train and compete and can they be made to feel valued for being like the biggest cheerleader on the sidelines cheering on their teammates even if they can't be on the field and so doing that kind of work, both in treatment, but also, you know, in the social circumstance. And that is how a coach can help. Like mm. a coach can really make that athlete still feel valued. And, and I think that's one of the saddest things about eating disorders being so secretive that someone has an eating disorder is a secret or that someone's in treatment is such a secret. Like, I know. That doesn't really help anybody.
1: <laughs> no, not at because all. Because it
0: doesn't allow other people to support the individual. Yeah. Right? And so, helping to kind of break the secrecy and almost normalize like, you know, just as if this person had an ACL tear and had surgery right. and was rehabbing from that, like eating disorders could be treated the same way and then people could get the social support they need instead of being like whispered about or like don't say this word in front of them, you know, yeah. and that comes to like breaking down the stigma and the stereotypes and we have a long way to go on that oh,
1: man, yeah, under
0: the mental health umbrella, of course, right? And right. people just don't know how to respond and react and handle that.
1: Right. I remember like being on the track team in high school and there was a girl who was clearly struggling with an eating disorder. Although like I at the time had no idea what that meant. And, you know, she would wear a sweatshirt while working out in the heat in the summer, you know, to hide what was going on. And, And everyone would just like talk about it behind her back or the coaches would like not say anything. And I just think like someone had just reached out and said, you know, what's going on, um, how how much of a difference that would have made.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and this is what we see from our research, because I've, I've, I I've did um a really interesting piece of research with one of my doctoral students. She was actually a sport psychology doctoral student, mm. and she published a set of papers. Um, we published them together, but it, from her dissertation, and they were the first in the literature to really characterize uh, and it was her study was done just in female athletes who had recovered from an eating disorder, and you know describing what were the factors related to onset and then the sort of the maintenance of the eating disorder and then what led them to treatment and recovery, and you know a very prominent theme in the sort of like what was the turning point for for you came from when somebody expressed care and concern for what. They were observant. Yeah. And oftentimes yeah. that was a coach, you know, or a teammate and how, you know, the, the participants talked about how, you know, it might not have been well received the first time, but the second or third or fourth time, like the people who really hung in there with me, the people who didn't judge me, but the people who said... I noticed this and I'm concerned. How can I help? Or, you know, simply what's going on? Is there something you want to talk about? Like that those were turning points that actually encouraged them to open up and share what was a big secret and what they were struggling with in silence and help to get them into treatment. And so that's the the part that a lot of people don't realize. They feel paralyzed because they don't know what to say or how to intervene. And so they don't say anything at all. Mm. And, what what happens to the person is, who's struggling is that they think, well, nobody cares about me because nobody's no one's said anything and yeah. nobody's saying anything. So I must not be worthy. You know, like I, I remember one of the quotes from the paper, one of the athletes said, you know, I was like, you know, practically vomiting in front of my coach. It's like, what do I need to do to get his attention? Like, why doesn't he see yeah. what I'm going through? And so just expressing care and concern can go a really really long way it can change someone's life
1: yeah well paula i have had so much fun having you on the show um (laughs) this is exactly the type of thing i love to talk about and it's so important um so thank you so much
0: absolutely yeah i have thank you for having me
1: yeah i have one last question i ask every guest just for fun and um my listeners really enjoy it so what is your favorite food
0: my favorite food, that is the easiest thing for me because <laughs> my favorite food, <laughs> being a dietitian, my favorite food is eggplant. Oh, and wow. <laughs> I grew up in a very That's big, a new extended Italian family. Uh-huh. And now I actually have the pleasure of teaching a summer study abroad course on the Mediterranean diet oh, in Italy. Oh, so cool. And it is so amazing that I finally am getting to do this at this phase of my life. But the thing that makes me happiest or I should say one of the many things is that I get to eat eggplant every day in the six <laughs> weeks that I'm in Italy and that's I, awesome it's just amazing
1: yeah you're so. definitely the first guest to say eggplant but I love that
0: I, I believe it <laughs> um, well
1: thank you so much and where can my listeners find you if they're interested
0: Um. so the easiest place to find me is at Boston University mm-hmm. and um, Sergeant College Health um, Sargent College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, um, but my email is Paula Q at bu.edu, and I do have a faculty webpage and a lab webpage that has lots of links to the papers I've published Perfect. and um, different things I've done in the eating disorder realm. Um, I do a lot of work with uh, a group called Running in Silence, and yeah. on their, on, Rachel, on their page, you know Rachel? we have a big yeah, we have a big Q okay. and A section mm-hmm. um, for specifically for coaches, but also for parents and athletes wanting information about eating disorders in sport. And so, I've been Rachel's partner answering from the oh, professional so side cool. some of those questions. Yeah, yeah, she
1: was on the podcast in the summer, so
0: fantastic, awesome, well, She's have, a great colleague.
1: Yeah, have a great rest of your week.
0: Okay. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or have anything you'd want to be addressed on the podcast, please send me an email at worth W-E-R-T-H, your wild nutrition at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.